Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 4, The Kofun Way of War. I'd like to spend the beginning of today's episode discussing the weapons and armor of the Kofun period. Then we'll launch back into the narrative and see how the armies from Japan fared in the 400s and 500s CE. The peninsular conflicts drew in not only the powers of Korea, but also those of northern China and Japan. It's all a bit messy, both the actual fighting and the source interpretation. If you're a big fan of historical controversy, then I think you'll be very pleased. But we'll get to all that later. Let's start with swords. By the mid-300s, and possibly even before then, the Japanese began using iron swords which were very similar in appearance to the classic double-edged Chinese Jian sword. The tsurugi, as the Japanese call it, was much more slender than the typical bronze sword used in the Yayoi period, and its point was likewise much sharper. A versatile blade, it was useful for stabbing and for slashing in either direction, and, as it was a one-handed short sword, its user could wield a shield in their other hand. Before anyone gets too excited, these blades were not forged using the famous folding steel technique for which later Japanese blades have become so notorious. We're still centuries away from that, but rest assured I'll have a lot to say on the subject once it comes up, because the purpose and outcome of that technique is widely misunderstood. Finished blades were not imported, as the technology for forging blades by casting had come to Japan via Korean immigration. Although Japan was still reliant on Korean trade for raw materials, iron could be forged without a loss in quality, unlike bronze. The Japanese warriors appeared to prefer shorter blades than their Chinese counterparts, and throughout the Kofun period, different styles began to appear. We find some swords from the 500s with a single sharpened edge, for example. The real artwork of a tsurugi, however, was in its hilt. Beneath the handle of the weapon was a circle where craftsmen could indulge their artistic expression. Dragons, pheasants, and even deer were popular choices for the Kofun warrior of taste. And it is difficult to look upon these hilt decorations and not think of the later decorative handguards enjoyed by the samurai. Spears remained popular throughout the Kofun period. These were not terribly different than their yayoi counterparts, save that more of them were forged of iron. Regarding archery, bows and arrows were certainly available, and you may recall that the records of Wei indicated that the Japanese used bows which had shorter lower halves. This is one area where I am a bit skeptical of the records, because a bow of that design was generally meant as a cavalry weapon, and we have reason to be fairly certain that horses did not come to Japan until the Kofun period. Bows and arrows were used in warfare, but judging from the armor of that period, they were probably more for harassment than inflicting casualties. The Kofun period was a fantastic time for armor in Japan, and the elite warriors in particular would enjoy plentiful torso protection from thick iron plates and iron helms. From the clay Haniwa burial statues, we see that some of the warriors of Kofun-era Japan wore armored skirts and trousers. Some historians argue that this, along with other archaeological finds, 
indicates a much higher level of Korean migration than previously believed because there was no social norm of wearing pants in Japan during the Yayoi period, and there's no practical purpose in war for wearing trousers unless you are riding a horse. Some have even suggested even more radical theories, which we will explore in the next episode. Understanding Japan's place in the wider theater of East Asia at this time is unfortunately very difficult. We have reports of Japanese armies occasionally besieging castles in Silla and carrying out raids in Koguryo during the 300s, but there is some uncertainty whether these were official Yamato court-sponsored expeditions or bands of warriors and adventurers seeking to make their fortunes through plunder. Our primary source of information from this period is a massive stone monument called the Guangaito Steel. Created to commemorate the rule of Guangaito the Great of Koguryo, this granite testament is almost 7 meters tall and nearly 4 meters wide. That's about 23 feet tall and 13 feet wide, American listeners. Upon the rock is carved in Chinese script the accomplishments of King Guangaito, including the various wars between the powers of Korea and the involvement of the people of Wa. The steel has more than a few problems, however. Time has worn parts of the inscription away in some places, and it includes absolutely no punctuation, which leaves certain portions at the mercies of the whims of its interpreters. Like the Gaia Mimana controversy, this is yet another problem that is exacerbated by the lingering tensions of Japanese imperialism from World War II. The monument could be read in a way that indicates Japan dominated the powers of Baikje, Gaia, and Silla, subjugating them as client states for a time. It could also be understood as indicating that Koguryo did the subjugating of the southern powers. My opinion on the matter, for now, is that I am not convinced that Japan successfully dominated the southern peninsula in this period. There's no doubt that Japan and Baikje developed a special relationship, and that when times got desperate, Baikje would send hostages to Japan and honor the Japanese king with Korean titles, but I am not certain that the two powers understood these gestures as an outright declaration of fealty or suzerainty. One of the most striking pieces of evidence is the Shichishito, a carbon steel sword with six points branching from its central structure, with its final point counting as a seventh branch, hence its name, the Seven-Branched Sword. The Nihon Shoki claims that this weapon was given to Empress Jingu after her conquest and subjugation of Baikje and Silla, and it is presently kept in the Isonokami Shrine in Nara. An analysis of the weapon's material and casting style led researchers to conclude that the blade was most likely forged in China around the late 360 CE, suggesting that this may have been a re-gift from the king of Baikje. The inscriptions on both sides are not helpful, as just like the Guangaito steel, they possess no punctuation and some characters are worn away. Like that great stone plinth, the seven-branch sword was trumpeted by Japanese imperialists in World War II as proof that Korea rightfully belonged to Japan. 
It can be difficult when politics and recent history so effectively cloud an issue to find anything resembling the truth. But I will try. By most accounts, the most powerful military force in the region at the time belonged to Goguryeo, so I think it makes sense to believe, for now, that it was the kingdom of Koguryo who generally dominated the peninsula and not Japan. I'm only too happy to change my mind if we ever recover more supporting evidence to the contrary. Operating under the assumption that the Korean peninsula of the early 400s witnessed the expansion and domination of Koguryo, let's move forward in the narrative. Near the beginning of the century, Baekje broke a peace treaty with Koguryo and allied with Japan, or at least with a faction that was identified as Wa. A large army from Wa invaded Silla, who begged Koguryo for help and promised their subservience in return. Koguryo agreed and sent a huge army to subdue the invaders. The Wa retreated but were trapped in a castle and soon surrendered. Gaia may have gotten involved at this point, but it's one of those places where the Guangaito Steel's inscription has worn away, so we aren't certain what was recorded there. A few years later, another army from Wa invaded the former territory of Daifang Commandery, which at this point had been Koguryo land for nearly a century. According to the Guangaito Steel, this army was defeated and suffered massive casualties in the face of a Koguryo assault. Over the course of the 400s, Koguryo would continually assert its dominance over the southern polities. Baekje would gradually diminish, and while Silla would remain relatively safe from Koguryo's expansion, they were forced to send tribute and accept a shameful status as a protectorate. I think the primary reason why Baekje was spared from being completely overrun in the 400s was that Koguryo was occasionally forced to deal with hostile neighbors in the north. The Buyeo, Jurchen, Xianbei, and Kitan tribes were a consistent threat against their poorest northern border, and periodically the Koguryo would launch expeditions into their territory to raid, plunder, and preemptively remove any threats to their domination of the north. After a long period of exchanging ambassadors and trying to bolster friendlier relations, in 475 things reached a crisis point for Baekje when Koguryo launched a massive invasion of their lands. It was at this point that Silla sent troops to help bolster their neighbor and de facto ally, dramatically breaking their alliance with Koguryo. Although they arrived too late to prevent Baekje's capital from falling, their newfound cooperation helped secure the kingdoms of the south, at least temporarily. Baekje suffered from internal instability after this, as ambitious generals seized control of the kingdom, marginalized the kings into figureheads, and had them assassinated when they refused to cooperate. Meanwhile, Silla began to adopt a number of reforms in the 500s centered around increasing the king's power while also adopting the more popular aspects of their neighbors. These reforms were not radical, but more of a recognition and codification of things which the people of Silla had adopted long ago. 
By the mid-500s, Silla and Baikje had a long-established friendship which each felt they could rely on. Meanwhile, Koguryo struggled to face new threats which emerged to their north, especially the ascendant Goturk Confederation. Believing their longtime foe to be vulnerable at last, Silla, Baikje, and Gaia launched a joint invasion of the Koguryo's kingdom's southern frontier, successfully taking the Han River Valley in 551 CE. They split the land between them for the moment, and Baikje, energized by the reconquest of their former domains, continued to put pressure on Koguryo's southern cities, launching several assaults in 553. Koguryo, desperate to hold their southern lands as they fought a war in the north, sent delegates to Silla and arranged a secret treaty. The Baikje troops, exhausted from another unsuccessful assault on a Koguryo castle, were only too happy to see an approaching ally ready to bolster their efforts. Instead, the Silla army attacked them and seized control of the entire Han River Valley. Incensed, the king of Baikje raised an army the next year to avenge his losses, but Silla troops successfully sprang an ambush which not only routed the army, but resulted in the capture of the Baikje king and his retinue, who were soon after subjected to execution. Silla was now unquestionably the most powerful kingdom in the south, which led Baikje and Gaia to believe that their best hope of survival lay in the nation of Japan. While I think we can express some uncertainty over the identities of the armies of Wa, which occasionally caused trouble on the Korean peninsula up to this point, Japan had increasingly centralized by the mid-500s. Next time, we'll examine the origins of the powerful elite group on Japan who called themselves its kings. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. 